The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I love it in Flint. You're very astute. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, mistress of the dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. (laughs) Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Gentlemen, who are we scheduled to interview next? I've been waiting around now for three weeks. (laughs) Of course, our apologies. Our next guest is the junior senator from New York. Senator, first we'd like to welcome you here today. We hope this will be a happy interview. No, well, I mean, that's, I don't think that that would be, I doubt if it will be. (laughs) (laughs) Senator is the father of nine children and a devoted family man. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out to come and speak with us here. I'm delighted to see uh, so many grown-ups all in one room. We continue the questioning with Mr. Swayze. Well, Senator, I wonder if we might switch for just a moment and... Keep the door open. <laughs> well, sir, we normally close the door for silence, you understand. I'm in favor of keeping that door open. <laughs> All right, we'll keep the door open. Thank you very much. Senator, as an out-of-stater, some people have questioned your motives for coming into New York. I grew up here in the state of New York. Well then, obviously it does have meaning for you. What exactly is New York to you and your wife, Ethel? Something that we will hand over to our children. (laughs) Mr. St. Ledger. Uh, Now that you're a senator, you must have some very, very exciting and vital things you plan on doing for the people of New York. No, I have no plans. Surely, surely, Senator, you have some ideas. I just have no plans. Well, what do the people of New York need? Well, I think you'd have to ask them. Senator, if we can, uh, if we can look ahead for just a moment, uh, do you think your brother Teddy will one day be president? If he wants to uh, join me and where I'm going, I'd be glad to have him along. <laughs> correctly interpret what you've just said, uh, when would you like to be president? Now. Well, I think you know it can't be done that quickly. 1965, 1966? No, obviously you can't run for president until 1968. I don't think that's fair. (laughs) 
that you're carrying on a feud with the president. Now, of course, none of us happen to believe that. Didn't you pay him a visit just recently? A few days ago. Did you have a nice, friendly chat with the president? I showed up and he had guards to keep me out. <laughs> understood, sir, that on a recent tour of the western United States, you visited Mount Rushmore. I did, yes. With the great heads of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln carved into the mountainside. That's correct. And as you stood there gazing up at that monument, did any particular thoughts come to mind? I'd like to be a part of that. <laughs> schedule. We almost took it upon ourselves to cancel this interview entirely. I would have been delighted. <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. Opening up this hour with uh, a little fun. Uh, that was uh, Robert F. Kennedy in his own words, but edited to fit uh, kind of a silly interview format courtesy of Earl Dowd from The First Family and Alan Robin from The Tonight Show. And uh, joined, they were joined by veteran newscasters John Cameron Swayze, Westbrook Van Voorhees, and John St. Ledger. And actually, this hour, we're going to take a more serious look at uh, Bobby Kennedy through the um, eyes of uh, biographer and author, uh, award-winning uh, journalist and author Larry Ty, who had written a book called Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a liberal icon and this is an encore but kind of a lead-up because tomorrow um, we're going to have uh, the author of a, a new book about the early days of the Kennedys in America when they first uh, immigrated uh, from uh, Ireland and uh, it's a book called The First Kennedys and this goes back before Joe and Rose and the ones that we know about and, and uh, see about and hear about. But uh, for today, as kind of a lead-up to that, we're going to uh, talk with Larry Ty, and that's coming up in just a moment. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Here's uh, everything you wanted to know about our <laughs> My guest this hour has been an award-winning journalist at the Boston Globe and a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. He now runs a Boston-based training program for medical journalists. He is the author of uh, the New York Times bestseller Satchel, as well as Superman, the Father of Spin, Homelands, and Rising from the Rails, and co-author with Kitty Dukakis of Shock. He lives in Massachusetts. He's the author of uh, what's being called the definitive biography of uh, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon is the name of the book. The name of the author is Larry Ty. He joins me now by phone. Larry, welcome to the show. Great to be on with you, Tom. Um, I was uh, reading through some, some notes about, uh, about the book last night, some, some things that you had written, in fact, a piece you had written for the Washington State Journal 
um, giving uh, modern-day Democrats uh, some advice about trying to find someone like Bobby Kennedy. Is there anyone like Bobby Kennedy? So there may be a couple people like Bobby Kennedy out there, and one of them is a guy named Christopher Kennedy, who is running for governor of Illinois, Bobby's youngest son, and he sure wants to make people in Illinois believe he's like his dad. And I think he, um, from the time that I spent with him, I think he gets what made his dad successful. And I think what that was, and one of the things that we could use, no matter what your ideology is today, is a politician who told the hard truth to people. And Bobby Kennedy used to go into, in an era of racial um, tension rivaling what we have today, he would go into black communities and white communities and shockingly tell them the same thing. And he would tell both communities that what we need first is safe streets before we can talk about anything else. And then he would say the only way to get safe streets is to have racial justice. And that was a message that neither the black world nor the white world wanted to hear. But I think they were, it was counterintuitive enough that a politician would come in and tell them something that they didn't want to hear, but that sounded truthful to them that people started to listen. And it was, I think that if it was ever a moment in American politics um, where we need a bridge builder and a truth teller, it's now. Is that, in the essence, from your research and the interviews you've done and the study you've made of uh, Robert Kennedy, is that that going against the grain, is that is that the persuasion element that we don't see in modern politics? And when I say modern politics, I'm talking about the last hundred years. Um, the, the, we seem to get into these uh, divides where, where, well, we call it gridlock in Washington. And it's because people are defending their positions and not educating or promoting a learning process. Yes. So that is where we are today. It is where we generally have been. And one of the reasons that Bobby Kennedy was able to do something a little bit different was because of the political and ideological transformation he had made in his life. He started out in the 1950s where much of America was, which was as a cold warrior. He went to work. His first real job out of law school was for Senator Joe McCarthy, going out and looking for communists in the State Department and other places in the American government. And he believed that McCarthy was the only guy taking seriously the red threat back then, and he was out there as a passionate McCarthyite. Um, in later years, he transformed the way America was, and I think ahead of where America was, and by the time of the 1968 campaign he ran for president, he was an iconic liberal figure. But in 1968, when he was running for president, he was on the cusp of building bridges between what we would today call angry white Trump supporters, and those are the people who supported him from his days in the 1950s, and he was building bridges with the Hillary Clinton coalition of liberals and minorities. And I think in 68, that he would have won the nomination, and more importantly, that he would have won substantially the presidency, and more important than even that, that he would have at least had the chance of trying to bring people together, because he had lived in both worlds and understood them in a way that was really kind of unique. There were so many things in your book that, that I, I think people don't 
think about or don't realize about Bobby Kennedy, and one of those was the fact that he had worked for uh, Joseph McCarthy early on in his career. And a lot of um, what McCarthy uh, tried to do went awry. Was that um, because he was just flat wrong from the beginning, or did people who worked for him, like Roy Cohn, take an innocent investigation to a not very innocent place? So I'm exploring exactly those issues now as I work on my next book, which is a biography of Joe McCarthy, and trying to understand to what extent it was McCarthy being wrong and to what extent it was him listening to the wrong advisors. And I'm convinced it was a little bit of both, that McCarthy um, was desperately looking in the early 1950s after he had won his first term in the Senate and was looking for an issue that would ensure he had a second term. He was looking for... Uh, an issue to grab onto. And at first it was an issue of the debate between oleo and butter. And then it was a debate over public housing. And then <laughs> in the issue that finally caught on for him, it was the issue of communists in government. And I think he wasn't quite sure what he was getting into when he did that. And he trusted in an extraordinary way this precocious and brilliant and arrogant young staffer named Roy Cohn and if you asked Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy would say McCarthy's downfall was trusting Roy Cohn. And I'm convinced that if McCarthy had chosen between Roy Cohn and Bobby Kennedy, and instead of choosing Roy Cohn, had given the top job to Bobby Kennedy, that he would have survived a whole lot longer, and he might have actually done a whole lot more good. Because Bobby Kennedy ran the only successful hearings, the only bipartisan hearings that McCarthy ran in his whole time chairing that important subcommittee on investigations were the hearings that Bobby Kennedy ran for him. And Bobby really did. He was the antithesis of Roy Cohn. He wasn't nearly as smart as Cohn, but he also wasn't nearly as reckless. And McCarthy needed somebody who was going to give him a sense of reason rather than steering him off in wild chases. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by that uh, that connection because Bobby Kennedy's presence in that process brings a credibility to it that it doesn't usually have. That's absolutely true, and that's one of the things that intrigued me about McCarthy was the idea that when I sat down with Bobby's widow Ethel and she started talking about how Roy, how uh, Joe McCarthy would come over after work and play with their toddler, Bobby and Ethel's firstborn, Kathleen Kennedy. And what an extraordinary, charming character he was. That wasn't the Roy Cohn that I had grown up learning about. And she said, you know, in her words, in Ethel's words, Roy Cohn, that uh, Joe McCarthy may have been a monster to much of America, but to them he was the guy that Ethel thought so highly of him that she misremembered and said he was Kathleen Kennedy's godfather. And Kathleen, who's you know, a liberal Democrat was quick to point out that, that Joe McCarthy wasn't the godfather. But it just, it was a very different sense of who uh, Joe McCarthy was. And there's also this wonderfully intriguing thread that Roy Cohn, who was Joe McCarthy's protege as a young man, as an old man, was Donald Trump's tutor. And he may have been the singly most important political tutor in Donald Trump's life. Larry. The idea that we have this stream. It's amazing. Larry, I hate to do this to you, but we've got a break for uh, a few minutes, but I, I'm... Hello? 
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is New York Times bestselling author Larry Tai. He, uh, we're talking about his book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for having me back. Um, Larry, just before the break, we, we were talking a little bit about the uh, connections between Bobby Kennedy and um, Joe McCarthy uh, from Wisconsin. And you were talking about having uh, interviewed Ethel Kennedy and how she spoke rather glowingly of uh, uh, Senator McCarthy, um, which is not the way he is remembered by most people. Um, there's a couple things that come to mind about that. My my mother and father, uh, this is very parenthetical, Larry, but they met in Washington, D.C. around those times. My mother used to tell a story about seeing Joe McCarthy in a uh, Capitol Hill watering hole. And the way she told the story, she made it sound like it was a fairly common occurrence where he was kind of loud and obnoxious and definitely drunk. Um, so it's a very different image. How did you get... Uh, to do an interview with Ethel Kennedy, who was always a little bit outside the spotlight, and um, and 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 I want to explore that that connection and also the connection to Roy Cohn and ultimately Donald Trump a little further. We just kind of brushed up against that. Sure. So first on Ethel, um, I'd love to be able to tell you that it was that I was so charming that she couldn't <laughs> say no to me after having said no to most journalists in office for 50 years. Uh, the truth was she was turning 88, and I was the guy on her doorstep when she was sensing her own mortality. Mm. And there is, um, if you could pick a perfect, perfect moment to interview people for a book, it is when they are old enough to have the sense that it is now or never, and um, still vibrant enough to have their marbles. And I think that Ethel fit both qualities, the... Um, she was amazing on the one hand in agreeing to talk to me. It was classic Ethel Kennedy. I live, I spent half my life on Cape Cod um, in Massachusetts, about 10 miles from Hyannisport, where the Kennedy compound is. But when Ethel agreed to talk to me, she said, fly to Palm Beach, which is where she lives another part of the year, rather than driving the 10 minutes to Hyannisport. And she wanted it on her terms. And I was convinced that she was about to, that she would kick me out of her place after about 10 or 15 minutes, that I knew that she didn't like journalists, and I thought she's going to get tired of this, and I'm going to have to front load all my questions. So I asked everything important that I wanted to ask really quickly, and at the end of two hours, when she was walking me out in her bare feet to my car, she offered to give me a ride to the airport and make me a sandwich. <laughs> um, I knew what kind of a cook she was. I knew what kind of a driver she was, so I politely turned down both of those. But during those two hours and during a subsequent two hours when I went back the next year, she was extraordinarily candid. Um, the Kennedy children, if you would ask Bobby and Ethel, the, the nine surviving of their 11 children, about Joe McCarthy, they will give you a spun version. Um, the spun version is sort of making it seem like it was an asterisk or a footnote in Bobby's career and his life. And Ethel made it clear that it was neither of those, that it was a very important and a defining time in his life. Um, when I asked Ethel why, when Bobby died 
Ethel displaced Jackie Kennedy as the singly most important, most popular woman in America, according to the Gallup and other polls. And I asked her why she never considered remarrying. And she pointed first to her wedding ring, and then she pointed up in the sky, and she said, I'm still married to Bobby, and I know that he's watching me, and how would I ever think about getting remarried? Now, if a politician said that to me, I would think that they were spinning me. <laughs> when Ethel Kennedy said it, knowing that she was almost as devout a Catholic as her mother-in-law, Rose Kennedy, and knowing that she was really devoted to Bobby, it rang true. And just about everything she said was surprising to me in terms of trying to understand who Bobby was, and everything that she said just seemed to me the same kind of truth-telling that we were talking about earlier about Bobby. And it was just the, um, uh, this woman has far too few filters, and she's too old to care about uh, telling tales. The the one thing that, that I, I've always been curious about, and you alluded to it a little bit, and that's the, the mortality rate of... Uh, all of Joe's, uh, Joe Kennedy's sons and uh, grandsons, and the um, uh, sort of urban legend of there being a curse of some kind on the Kennedy family. Do you think there was some sort of a curse on the Kennedy family? So I now believe in curses. I wrote a book, I wrote a biography of another heroic character named Superman, and there was a so-called Superman curse where everybody from George Reeves, who played him on television, to Christopher Reeves, who yeah. played him in the movies, um, everybody had something wrong uh, go wrong with them. And I think with the Kennedys, it was even worse. It started out with, so Joe and Rose had nine children. And at a very young age, Kathleen Kennedy, um, the, their oldest daughter, died in a horrible plane crash. Then Joe Jr., who was the one that the Kennedys put their faith in to become president, Joe Jr. died in a mission that he volunteered for to try to take out the German V-2 rockets over um, in France. And he crashed, and horrible news to the family, and that was when Jack became the anointed one to become president. Um, then we know what happened to Jack, and then we know what happened to Bobby, and that's four children. A fifth child, Rosemary, um, was born with um, some sort of mental, uh, some sort of mental disability. It's unclear whether it was retardation or autism, or nobody in those days was very good at diagnosing things. But Joe tried um, on Rosemary had had her get a lobotomy. It was a very new and it seemed like a potentially promising procedure. So a fifth child ended up in a sort of vegetable-like state and living um, in, I think it was actually in Wisconsin, um, in a nunnery where Joe had paid a lot of money for nuns to take care of her and to keep quiet on everything that was going on with her. I mean, we just saw tragic things happen to five out of nine children. That's pretty horrible. One of the things that inspired me to do the book on Bobby was that I went to high school with his most tender middle child named David, who ended up um, a long time ago dying of a drug overdose. Another one of his children died in a tragic accident on the ski slopes. It was just the, 
the Kennedys uh, just had horrible things happen to them and had horrible things happen to people all around them. And it, it, whether it was a curse or whether it was just having a big family that was out there doing uh, testing the limits on, in lots of ways, they just uh, this was a really bad thing. And, and the fact that both uh, John Kennedy and, and Robert Kennedy, within a fairly short time of each other, were both assassinated, that doesn't happen in the same family. I mean, uh, It doesn't happen in the same family. It doesn't happen in a way that it was at seemingly at their moment of sort of greatest hope. With John Kennedy, it was when everything finally seemed to be coming together with his presidency. He had overcome the Bay of Pigs disaster in his early years. He had he and the world made it through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And just when it looked like he was going to be able to run a successful campaign for re-election, and just when it looked like everything was coming together, he's gunned down. Bobby Kennedy is shot in a hotel in L.A. on the night of his greatest political victory, the night that he wins the California presidential primary. And again, in tragic fashion, so he, he gives his victory speech that night, and he jumps off the stage and goes into the kitchen where he's eventually gunned down. He might not have been gunned down if the ex-FBI agent who was his bodyguard during that campaign and who never left his side, Bobby had told that guy, a guy named Bill Barry, I want you to stay behind and help Ethel, who was like seven or eight months pregnant, help her down off the stage. So Barry's not with Bobby when he goes into the kitchen and a gunman is waiting for him, and the people who are with him aren't armed and aren't professionals. And Bill Barry, more than 50 years later, has never forgiven himself for not being there at Bobby's side. Just the tragic way that there were assassins out there and the tragic way that the people who were supposed to be protecting these guys didn't just makes it even worse. When you dig as deep into somebody's life as you did with Bobby Kennedy, especially somebody that people think they know a lot about because a lot has been written, a lot has been recorded for posterity through television movies and documentaries and so on. Um, are you surprised by the things that you find? Did you find yourself shattering some myths? I did. So I went in with lots of myths about him. He was a heroic character, and partway through the the process, I had seen enough bad about him. I had seen the way during his brother Jack's campaign for president in 1960, which Bobby ran, I had seen the way Bobby lied repeatedly. He lied about Jack's, whether or not Jack was ill. And Jack had a very disabling disease, in those days very disabling, called Addison's disease. And had the public known how ill he was, um, the supposedly vibrant contrast to Richard Nixon would have looked a whole lot less vibrant. And Jack won by a very narrow margin. And I think he won in part because of Bobby's deceptions. Richard Nixon, who ended up uh, getting the moniker Tricky Dick, said that he learned his best tricks from Bobby Kennedy in 1960. <laughs> uh, so that was one set of lies. Bobby Kennedy lied about his role during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He made himself seem like he was... Um, pushing for the middle ground of a blockade uh, from the beginning of the crisis, when in fact he was pushing for air attacks on the island of Cuba, which might have launched us into World War III. He lied about that in the book that he wrote, and we only found out the truth 
when the secret tapes of the cabinet meetings uh, that he and Jack had made became public years later. Partway through writing this book, I wasn't sure that I liked Bobby Kennedy anymore, and yet by the end, I liked him more even than I had at the beginning. And that's because, A, because he changed and really did become better and more truthful, and secondly, because I think any real hero, to be a convincing hero, has to be a flesh-and-blood one, and we have to understand all their flaws as well as their upside, and then we can weigh whether we like them or not. Now, you talked about uh, Ethel's um, commitment to their marriage. Was uh, Bobby as committed uh, as she was? So what I would say about that <laughs> is, of all Joe Kennedy's kids, Bobby was both the most puritanical and the most sanctimonious, and that leaves a lot of room. I don't know <laughs> what Bobby did. Whether he had affairs or not, I have my suspicions, but next to Jack, next to Ted, um, next to the next generation, uh, whatever he did on a personal front um, didn't seem as bad as, as the model that his dad, who was openly having an affair with Gloria Swanson for decades, um, Bobby looked pretty good next to that. And I also know that every night he went home to Ethel and that she adored him. And you don't have 11 kids with somebody if you're not committed to family life, and he really was. You talk a lot about the transformation of uh, of Bobby Kennedy from his days with Joe McCarthy to that fateful day in uh, Los Angeles when he was beginning to really gain some momentum in his campaign for the presidency. Um, what can can you describe briefly that transformation? So I can. So I think Bobby Kennedy and you, Tom, probably had a lot in common. You both did an incredibly um, a dizzying array of different and interesting things in your life. And I suspect you both learned a lot from what you did, and that changed you. And I like to say that, that um, Joe Kennedy had a dream for his children, and especially for his sons. And that dream was a very ambitious one, that um, one after the other, each of them would become president of the United States. And Joe never set his sights small. Rose Kennedy had a more modest uh, dream, and your listeners will remember that Rose Kennedy was this woman who died at age 301 um, in church, <laughs> saying a prayer. She was a very devout, very um, committed, very, she was, if, if the Kennedys were the first family, Rose was America's mother. And her dream was that one of her children would make the church their vocation. And had, had Jack Kennedy gone into the church instead of politics, uh, he would have been the Pope, because Jack, that's the way Jack was. He was sort of above things, intellectual, elitist. Had Bobby gone into the church, he would have been a parish priest, because that's the way he learned, by experiencing, by being in the grassroots. And that is also how he changed. He changed on civil rights by learning firsthand about all the mistakes he made on civil rights. When he never intervened and lots of people got stuck in riots and badly injured, he learned in the Cuban Missile Crisis by being wrong in the first five or six of those 13 horrible days in October of 1962, such that by the end of the crisis, when he called for a blockade, it was a very convincing call. In just about everything that he did, he grew and learned and changed. And today, in our cynical view, we would say on a lot of issues that he might have been a flip-flopper. 
But in fact, he was changing before the country changed. He was an advocate for our being in Vietnam in the early days, and he was part of the reason that Jack sent in the troops. By the mid-1960s, when he was a U.S. senator, when most of America still supported the war in Vietnam, he stood up in the U.S. Senate and said something very few people ever say in the U.S. Senate, which is, I was wrong, mea culpa, we've got to get out of Vietnam. And so his change was not with the political wind, it was trying to steer the political wind, and this is a long-winded way of saying, I'm convinced that his growth and his transformation was for real. To what, um, you know, there, there was a lot of talk about the uh, uh, the JFK administration and the fact that uh, he appointed Bobby as attorney general. But in both of their, their public lives, their, their speaking lives, they were informed by great quotes from from literature and from history, uh, as well as their own ability to turn phrases. Um, to what degree was Bobby Kennedy's transformation informed by by education and study, and to what degree was it informed by experience like his trip to Mississippi? So for the first half of his public life, it was informed by experience. That was the way he learned and grew best. But he had an epiphany moment that day in November of 1963 when his brother was gunned down. Bobby lost in an instant not just his brother, but his best friend and his whole professional sense of purpose. And a guy who used to take out his tensions by going and playing a bone-crushing game of touch football on the famous front lawn at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, starting after his brother's death and steered in that direction by his sister-in-law, Jackie, he started reading, and he started reading, of all things, Greek tragedies. And he saw in the story of the Greeks the sense of hubris of the Kennedy family, the sense that you could have everything and it could all, in some tragic way, come crashing down. And he started taking on a more nuanced sense of life and more of a sense that great quotes and great books and great thinkers could help inform his experience in his growth along with the sense of experiencing things firsthand. I, I know there are an awful lot of quotes that uh, are, are credited to Bobby Kennedy that actually came from from writers and, and people that he had read. One of the one of the most famous is uh, cursing the the uh, the darkness. Uh, so that came from somebody else. The quote that was up on my high school wall <laughs> about um, some men see things the way they are and ask why others dream of things as they could be and ask why not. And that was a brilliant quote. Um, it happened not to be Bobby Kennedy in the first place. It was George Bernard Shaw. But Bobby borrowed lots of things, and sometimes he remembered to attribute them, and lots of times he didn't. What about the, the relationship between the, uh, the, the Kennedys and uh, uh, LBJ? So there were four people in his life that Bobby despised. Um, one of them we've already talked about, and that was Roy right. Cohn. A second one has been in the news a lot um, recently because of what happened with Trump and the FBI, and that was the, the powerful FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. A third one was the notorious head of the Teamsters Union, Jimmy Hoffa. But of all the people that he really despised, the one he probably despised the most, and most sadly, 
was Lyndon Johnson. And there was something about the two of them. Um, it may have been that Lyndon Johnson came from the foothills of Texas and grew up poor and went to East Texas Community College, and Bobby Kennedy grew up rich and went to Harvard. And LBJ resented Bobby for that, and Bobby looked down on LBJ. Uh, from the moment they met, they were like two dogs with their hair standing on edge and growling, and that never changed. Bobby didn't want LBJ to be Jack's vice president. He sure as heck didn't want him to be Jack's successor. He considered him an interloper in the White House. And what is most sad to me is that tension between the two of them, I think, encouraged LBJ. When Bobby became anti-Vietnam War, it made LBJ more determined to stick it out in Vietnam till the end. Um, the two of them could have collaborated on everything from figuring a way out of Vietnam to ending uh, poverty in America, which was both of their great passions. Imagine if Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson had combined their political acumen to take on civil rights issues, and instead they were at one another's necks for most of their time together. You know, there was a, 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 a period of time during that uh, that thousand days of the JFK presidency where Jackie and, and Bobby became um, sort of uh, um, pundits, really, for the administration, where they went out and gave speeches and, and traveled to other countries and promoted democracy. We don't have anybody doing that anymore. We don't. We have. Um, we don't have anybody uh, trying to do it anymore, and I don't think we have anybody as capable of giving as positive and upbeat a sense of America's optimism and youthful sort of spirit. And imagine having at your disposal, if you were Jack Kennedy, being able to send out your elegant and sophisticated wife and your passionate and sort of um, and enthusiastic brother. And they used, as you say, he used them incredibly effectively. And Bobby Kennedy was the inspiration in the Peace Corps. He was the inspiration when he went to places ranging from Vietnam and Japan to across Latin America. He was a rock star. And he had people who were covering him say it was like it would have been um, as if the Beatles were on tour because he was drawing those kinds of crowds of young people screaming. Larry, this is uh, such a fun uh, conversation. Unfortunately, I'm up against another break here. Is there a possibility you could stick around and do another uh, short segment with us? So I'd love to do that. Oh, that would be great. Um, we uh, break away so our broadcast partners can squeeze a few words in edgewise. And for the people that are streaming us live, we have uh, a, uh, a break there as well. Um, and uh, my guest is Larry Ty. He's New York Times bestselling author. The book we're talking about is the definitive uh, biography, as it's been described, called Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We'll be back with more right after this. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. <laughs> Show. Oh, 
This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Loan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Yellow. Honey, it's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. 
Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov slash AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the uh, author of uh, the book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Welcome back, Larry Ty. Great to be back again. Um, Larry, early in uh, in the hour, we were talking about the, the connection between Bobby Kennedy and Joe McCarthy and also Roy Cohn. You were talking about the uh, the four people. I think it was four that uh, Bobby Kennedy really despised, Roy Cohn being the first of the four that we, that we talked about. But you also uh, talk about a connection from Roy Cohn to the Trump administration that I find kind of fascinating, and I want to make sure we... Uh, at least touch on that for a moment. Sure. So the Roy Cohn was, um, for a young Donald Trump, a political tutor. He's the one who told him that when somebody attacks you, fight back and hit him even harder than they hit you. Um, he's the one who I think instructed him that um, more important to be out there saying something strong and hard and quick than accurate. You can see extraordinary ways in which Roy Cohn transmitted to Donald Trump a lot of the best and the worst attributes of Joe McCarthy. And I think that um, that to me is just an intriguing, we don't often have one character who turns up in an important point in our history and then 50 years later resurfaces at another important point. And I think that um, that kind of connection and the deference that Donald Trump pays to Roy Cohn as his maybe most important early tutor is an extraordinary historical thing. Bobby's legacy, what does this book do now to that legacy? Um, I think what the book does, I hope what the book does, is cements it as his being a more nuanced and um, interesting figure than we thought of him as. If he was sort of on a straight line in his development and the and if he was the sainted figure that he was often presented as, that's not an interesting and it's not a convincing portrait of who he was. I also hope that what it really does is makes him seem not just as a nostalgic figure, somebody we look back to as representing the 50s and the 60s, but as a figure who has something very poignant and passionate to say to us today in the year 2017. It's not accidental that people ranging from Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton point to Bobby Kennedy as their inspiration and role model. And I think lots of people in the country and lots of people in the Democratic Party have spent the last 50 years looking for the kind of tough liberal, or if you prefer, tender conservative that Bobby Kennedy represented. That being said, you talk about a lot in the book surrounds a transformation of Bobby Kennedy through experiences and and through some of his uh, reading and study later on in his career. But was there and, and, of course, you talk about the... Uh 
the assassination of uh, JFK as being a moment in time, but was there something about those times that became, uh, I, I guess the best way to put it is, did the times make the man? And are the times we're going through now, do they have the potential of making another liberal icon like uh, Bobby Kennedy? So, good question, and the times definitely made the man in the sense of America was changing dramatically from the 1950s to the 1960s. And so if Bobby had any prayer of sort of staying relevant in that era, he had to change. And change was really well suited to who he was constitutionally, but it was also essential in those times. And today we're changing even faster. As much as things look tumultuous in the 1960s in terms of the, the pace and the breadth of change today it turns your head and today we're in a you know a news cycle that transforms every 13 seconds we're in a world where everything from what's happening in medicine to what's happening on a technological front is transformative and so today we need even more than we did in Bobby Kennedy's era somebody who can change and more importantly than change change for the better and along with change that they have a certain core set of beliefs and ethics that stay consistent even as lots of things around them and as they themselves are changing. So if all you were doing is changing, you'd be a zealot like sort of the Woody Allen and the great movie zealot. You'd be changing with everything um, and sort of chameleon-like. Bobby Kennedy was growing, but he also held to a certain core set of beliefs. Abraham Lincoln, you mentioned flip-flopping with Bobby Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln once said uh, when he was accused of flip-flopping on something, he said, I like to think I'm a little smarter today than I was yesterday. Exactly. (laughs) So that's a perfect way of characterizing it. And I think Bobby Kennedy is a sort of interesting Abraham Lincoln-like figure. So anybody older in your your listening audience will remember that we referred to Bobby Kennedy as RFK by his initials. Yeah. The only person, other than Martin Luther King, who wasn't a president in our long history that we ever referred to by their initials, you know, was FDR and JFK and other presidents. But Bobby Kennedy is one of the only people who wasn't president that we knew that way. And I think we knew him that way because he was, in a way, America's little brother. If Jack Kennedy was our great hope, Bobby was this precocious and enthusiastic little brother that the country learned to love and it showed that it loved him when he died his funeral train taking his body from new york to burial at arlington cemetery in washington had a million people lining the railroad tracks and the only time we've ever seen that before was with abraham lincoln and it was just extraordinary they were black and white poor and rich lots of old lots of very young and it was sort of america coming to say goodbye to their kid brother and the guy who had captured this new sense of hope. Would we remember the Kennedys uh, as fondly as we tend to had they not been assassinated? That's a great question, and who knows? I can tell you that, geez, wouldn't it have been great if we had the Kennedys sitting in rocking chairs as our elder statesmen? But we might have tired of them. We might not have re-elected them. We might not, in Bobby's case, have elected them at all. But since he died young... I can spin out a story, and that story is he would have been the nominee, he would have been the president, he would have been a great president, he would have been re-elected in 1972, and most importantly, he would have started to redress 
some of the same issues that remain on our plate today, whether it's racial justice or foreign entanglements, and we might not have all the issues that we have today if somebody like Bobby Kennedy had been elected in 68 instead of Richard Nixon. Did, working on this book, it, did that drive you to your decision to do your next book about Joe McCarthy? It did. So two things drove me, or three things drove me to do Joe McCarthy. One is Bobby Kennedy. A second is the idea that there were lots of papers out there today that haven't been out there for other biographers on Joe McCarthy, including nearly 10,000 pages of transcript of secret hearings that McCarthy held that were embargoed for 50 years. And the third thing is Donald Trump. And I think to understand who Donald Trump is, journalists and authors are going out today and interviewing people who voted for Trump and scouring the country, seeing how they missed the phenomenon of Donald Trump. I think another way to understand who Donald Trump is, is to go back and revisit the guy who was the archetype for who Donald Trump is today as president. And that is Joe McCarthy. That was uh, Larry Tai. He is the uh, New York Times bestselling author with, we were talking about his book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a liberal icon fascinating uh, book and uh, and and a good humored guy yeah a fun guy to talk to thanks uh, again to larry ty that was our uh, kind of a throwback thursday offering he was on the show a few weeks ago we did that interview that and, interview uh, was so fun i bought the book oh did you really yep and after i read, read See, it i did that with ann serling's book did you yeah after i read the book i sent it to my uncle who loves politics my dad's brother. And I also want to say uh, thanks to uh, Brendan Beery. That was a, a pretty interesting conversation. If you missed our conversation earlier, it'll be rebroadcast here probably in a few minutes. You uh, wouldn't think a law <laughs> professor would be so interesting. You know, when you think of law professors, it, it you sounds, think of it dry, sounds dull. But he never is. No, he's, he's always uh, a lot of fun. He was actually... <laughs> That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that encore presentation of my uh, conversation with Larry Ty talking about his book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. It's a great lead-in to um, uh, tomorrow morning's uh, interview with uh, Neil Thompson, the author of The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. Brand new book goes on sale uh, today, actually, and um, we'll be talking with the author uh, tomorrow leading into Armchair Politics. Tomorrow's Wednesday, so Armchair Politics it is. I also want to say thanks to Dr. David Wilcox, the author of... Um, how to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a Patient's Handbook for Survival. And before that, a very interesting conversation with Shandor Jasberini. He is the uh, editor-in-chief of the Continental Literary Magazine. He is a uh, war correspondent who has traveled extensively in Ukraine recently and throughout the Middle East over the last decade or two and um, anyway interesting conversation with Shandor to be sure hope you enjoyed today's show again tomorrow's Wednesday armchair politics uh, Seth Radwell the author of American Schism will join our roundtable regulars so we'll see you then good night everybody the Tom Sumner program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show 
and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.